Now, if you could uh, turn your Bibles, please, to um, Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this evening, Mark chapter 12. We'll look at the first 12 verses of this chapter, Mark's Gospel. I have to say that for me as a Christian, one of the things that that really interests me in chatting to my friends who aren't Christians um, is why they're not Christians, why they don't believe in Jesus, why they don't believe in the Gospels. And often their responses are, are a mix of intellectual objections or uh, more often than not personal objections uh, or just downright apathy. They just really don't care about Christianity. They really don't care. It has no relevance to their life at all. But it's interesting because if Jesus really is, as Christians believe, the king of all, if he is the Lord of creation, if he is the way to salvation, the path to eternal life, the fountain of all joy and peace and happiness, then why do so many people want absolutely nothing to do with him? I do a youth club here on Friday night that Scott was praying for called Impact. We have around 50 kids come along, mainly non-church kids. And during, we have a little five-minute God slot in that youth club. And after it, One of the kids asked me the question where he said, if this is so good, then why don't more people follow Jesus? If it's really as good as you say it is, then why don't more people follow Jesus? It's an incredibly insightful question for a 12-year-old, a really good question to ask. And it it really got me thinking. I think a lot of cases, people don't really know Jesus. They don't know the Jesus of the Bible. But what I find even more striking is people who have encountered Jesus in the Bible. People who would perhaps even say that they were religious, that they went to church, and yet in reality would have nothing to do with him. Of course, this is uh, nothing new. This is what what we see in, in Mark's gospel. When Jesus did come, when he came into human history, he came to the nation of Israel. That was God's chosen nation, chosen to represent him to the world. That was the nation that God had spoken to, that God had given his word to. God had told them that he would send a king to them, known as the Messiah, a promised king who would come and who would bring salvation to the entire world. And yet Mark records for us the arrival of this king in Mark chapters 11 through to 13 that we've been looking at in these evening services. And when Jesus does come to his own people, to the people who were waiting for his arrival, he is not met with open arms, but he is met with hostility and opposition. And the people who oppose him are the ones who are meant to be welcoming him. It's the religious ruling leaders of Israel the ruling leaders of God's nation who knew their Bibles. No one else in the world did. These guys did. If there was going to be one group of people that would have accepted the Messiah when he arrived, you would expect it to be the religious ruling body of Israel. But it wasn't. They rejected Jesus. In fact, it was them who killed Jesus. It's astounding for us uh, here to, to look back on this and to think about it and to see the religious establishment rejecting the one whom they claimed to follow. Not the atheists, not the agnostics, but the religious people kill the one they claim to follow. And yet this has often been the case in the history of the church, not just in Israel. 
to have those who look very religious and pious, who, who go to church, who lead the church, and yet reject the authority of Jesus. The question then, the question then is why? Why, if, if these people were the ones that were meant to accept Jesus, why is it that they rejected him? Why did the religious establishment want to kill Jesus? Why was it that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanted to crucify the king that had been promised to them in their scriptures? Well, Jesus is going to tell us in this parable from Mark chapter 12. Jesus has just been challenged by the religious leaders of Israel on his authority. And following on from that rejection of his authority, he tells them this story. Mark chapter 12, 1 to 12. And he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. and It is marvelous in our eyes. And they, that is the religious ruling leaders, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now, there are three points in this parable that I, that I want us to, uh, to, to focus on in detail that I want to pick up on. You can see them there. I've got them on the back of your service sheet. Three points in which Jesus will show the failure of Israel's leaders and what he plans to do about it. And as we look at this, we can see obvious parallels, I think, between how the religious establishment and the Church of Christ has done similar things. But what I want us to do, uh, to borrow a metaphor from a famous preacher, is not just shine the spotlight out there, but to shine it in on us here, and to see how we too could be in danger of doing what these religious leaders did, and to see how we too might not be submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ. So three points from the parable. Firstly, this parable shows us God's long-suffering kindness to the leaders of Israel. God's long-suffering kindness to the leaders of Israel. And the idea of a, of a vineyard, it was a common metaphor used in the Old Testament for the people of God. If you've been here with us on Sunday mornings, you'll have noticed that um, from last week, Isaiah chapter 5. We were reading about the vineyard there. God compares the nation of Israel to a vineyard. It's a vineyard that has been planted on fertile land. It's a vineyard that has walls around it and a tower to protect it. It's the perfect growing environment. And this is the image that, that, that God is given of his people. He has protected his people. He has provided his people 
provided for his people, like an owner would his vineyard. But Jesus adds something to that Old Testament metaphor that's not in Isaiah chapter 5. He mentions that the owner of this vineyard sent tenants to look after it. Now, these tenants are representative of the Pharisees and and the teachers of the law and the other religious ruling leaders of God, appointed to guide and to shepherd his people Israel. They were there to help the vineyard produce fruit. In other words, the religious leaders were meant to help God's people to live in a way that, that reflected the way that God wanted them to live. They were to live a godly lifestyle. It's what it means to produce fruit. They were to create a community of people that would love God and love others as themselves. But this is hardly what happened in the history of the Old Testament. This is hardly what happened in Israel's history. And in the parable that Jesus uh, tells, when the owner sends a servant to collect the fruit, what do they do to him? Verse 3, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So what does the owner do? What does God do? Well, verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. This is a picture that Jesus is telling us of God sending his servants to the religious leaders of Israel to see what kind of godly lifestyle they had been able to cultivate in their country. Who are these servants that God sends? Well, in Israel's history, these are the prophets. Sent from the time of Moses onwards. In the Old Testament, we constantly read of prophets sent by God, and when they come to the people of God, they are not met with open arms, but like Jesus, they are met with opposition, with ridicule, with rejection, even with death. Prophet Elijah, about 800 years before Christ, he spent his life on the run under the threat of death from Israel's king. The prophet Amos, about 700 years before Christ, was banished from the kingdom of Israel, whom he was prophesied to go and help. The prophet Isaiah, who had the quote about the vineyard, was sawn in two. The prophet Jeremiah was beaten and put into stocks, then imprisoned in a muddy cistern. Time and time again, God's messengers that he sends to Israel are either rejected, beaten, or killed by the religious ruling body. More closer to the time of Jesus, John the Baptist. He was considered a prophet at the time. In fact, you can see that there uh, in Mark. You can see that in verse 32 of Mark 11, just before this section. People regarded John as a prophet, and he was killed by the religious ruling establishment. This is what Jesus is describing in this parable. This is what many of, of God's leaders did to God's prophets. They beat them, they humiliated them, and they killed them. So the servants would come back empty-handed. And in some sense then, the rejection of Jesus Christ by these people is of no surprise. It's in their blood. It's in their history. But notice what these verses teaches us. And this is really key. These verses show us the unrelenting kindness and patience of God. 
Listen to what the author of 2 Chronicles says about the time that God kept sending messengers whom his people killed. Uh, This is a verse worth jotting down. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his word and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. You see, God's motivation for this, for sending these prophets to this nation, the owner's motivation for sending the servants to the vineyard is compassion. Can you imagine if if you were this landowner, if you owned this vineyard, or, or let's Let's modernize it. Imagine uh, you owned a flat here in the city and you had a tenant that was due to pay you rent. But you were abroad, so you sent someone to go and collect the rent because they weren't paying it. And they beat that person up. What would you do after that? You probably wouldn't think about sending another person. You'd probably look at executing judgment on them right there and then. Get them out your flat. But God doesn't do that. He sends another person and he sends another person and he keeps sending them people because that is what God is like. He's not like us. We would react with vengeance straight away for such despicable behavior, but not so with God. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to use the language of Exodus 34. Or to use the language of the Apostle Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not a harsh tyrant, but a compassionate father. And he will not turn away those who humbly come back to him, no matter what you've done. See, Jesus is showing us that the judgment that God is going to bring, that he is about to bring on these people, is not harsh, nor is it hasty. It is after constant warning. God always gives people an opportunity to turn back, an opportunity to come to him in repentance. One day, every human being will have to stand before God on the day of judgment. And there will be no one on that day who says, you didn't give me enough evidence. You didn't give me enough opportunities. God always gives opportunities. He has given them these warnings. We have his word here, and therefore we must strive as individuals and as a church to stick to it, to abide by it, and not be like the religious ruling body of Israel that chose to reject the warnings of God and do what was right in their own eyes. It's no surprise then that when God does finally decide to send Jesus, his son, there was only one way in which he would be met by these people. Second thing we see, the selfish rejection of God's son by the leaders of Israel. Think back to being the owner of that flat in the city if you kept sending people to collect the rent uh, that you were due, if you sent somebody else after the first person got beaten up and then they got beaten up, and then if you sent someone else and they got killed, people would think you were mad. But how insane would it be to think about sending somebody in your family to tenants such as these? 
What? Who would do that? Who would send their son to tenants like these? Look at what this owner does. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. You know, it's true that the son would have had legal rights that the servants didn't have. And so for that reason, they should respect him. But there was only one way in which these tenants would treat this son when he came. See, the owner sends as a last resort something that is most precious to him. This is, is the pinnacle of his love and patience. Not just another servant. Here God sends one who is unique. Do you notice the emphasis on that? He had still one other One who is special. One who is beloved by him. One who represents him. One who is part of him. Jesus is, is of course, talking about himself in this parable. Placing himself in Israel's history as the last and final revelation of God. Sent by the Father with the Father's authority to the Father's property to collect the Father's due. And what do the religious leaders do with such a great expression, an act of love and kindness? Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is what the religious leaders in Mark's time did to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They stripped him beat him, they humiliated him, and they crucified him outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Now notice a few things here. Notice that this parable is not about the Jews' rejection of Jesus. They are represented as the vineyard. This parable is about the Jewish leaders' rejection of Jesus. Notice as well that Jesus knows that he is going to die in telling this. And notice also that he gives two reasons as to why these religious people killed him. Firstly, they kill him because they know who he is. There's no ignorance in their crime. They know he's the son. They know he's the heir. And that's exactly the reason that they want him dead. Secondly, they kill him because they want his inheritance. They want to own the vineyard. In other words, they want to be in charge of the people of God. The religious leaders killed Jesus not because they didn't know who he was, but precisely because they did know who he was. And if Jesus really is this this long-for promised king, it means that they're not in charge anymore. They want to be king. They want to rule Israel. They want to control this country. Their rejection of Jesus is rooted entirely in self-centeredness and it wears all the mask of religious piety. In seeking to dispense of God, they themselves want to become God. That is the essence of all that is wrong with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Mark's gospel. Why do churches today reject the authority of Jesus? It's for one simple reason. They don't want to live with him as king of their lives or their church. They want to call the shots. And although this parable is directed towards 
these religious ruling leaders, here we get a picture of what the Bible teaches about why many people reject Jesus. We don't like the fact that there is someone higher than us, someone that that we are answerable to. And, And so we seek to put ourselves in the center and we declare that we are the king of our lives. We're the ones who make the decisions about our lives. Nobody is in charge of us. And that may seem reasonable to many, but in God's world, that's treason. Because we do have a king. This is the the fundamental problem with humanity. This is what the Bible calls sin. We want to rid God of any authority that he may have and declare ourselves kings. We want to enjoy the benefits of all that God has given to us without any reference to him, praising the gifts rather than the giver. And in doing so, we, like the religious leaders, reject the one true king. And to reject the crescendo of God's love and kindness is the worst thing that you can do as a human being. It is in essence to wish that God's son was dead. If you're not wanting to have him as king of your life. That wee boy youth club asked, if it's so good, and why don't more people follow Jesus? I think the answer is, in many cases, if not all, is because we want to be kings. We are not willing to yield authority over to him. We want it for ourselves. And the question we have to ask ourselves then, if we really are followers of Jesus, those who do claim to live under his authority, is do we treat him like he's our king? Because it's the religious people that can reject Jesus and not treat him like a king, make decisions and, and treat Jesus almost as if he's an assistant to them. Are we willing to let him take the reins, to build our lives around his authority, to submit to his words? You can have all the appearance of being religious like the Pharisees, and yet you cannot live with Jesus as the center of your life? Do we take Jesus' words seriously in Mark chapter 8? That if we are to follow him, to be his disciple, then we have to, take up, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him daily. Deny ourselves and put him as the ultimate and as the central figure and the controlling point of our lives. That's what it means to live as Jesus, as king. The Jewish religious leaders, they want the power and they want the authority that only the Son of God has. And they would rather him dead than give to him what is rightfully his. Thirdly and finally then, this parable shows us the coming judgment on the leaders of Israel. This is really the reason why Jesus is telling this parable. If these people are going to reject him, he's saying that judgment's coming on you guys. This is, this is their last warning. Too long had these leaders distorted the practices of God. And that old way is now to be abolished with the arrival of the king. People often think that Christianity was a sort of offshoot of Judaism. But it's not. Mark's showing us that actually what Jesus is bringing in is the rightful continuation of what was promised long ago in the New Testament. What the religious leaders had established at the time of Jesus was the weird offshoot. What will God do then with such a rejection of his son? That's the question Jesus asks. What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. There is an end to God's wick. It's a very long wick, but there is an end. And the rejection of the son merits only one response from God himself. The destruction of the tenants. For those who reject the son of God, there will be judgment. This is Jesus' final warning. This could be, I guess, a warning for some of us here tonight. Not to reject Jesus. This is how serious it is. If we look at the parable, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? In fact, I think if it was us, like I was saying earlier, we probably would have executed judgment on these men ages ago for the horrendous crimes that they committed. The religious leaders of Israel know that Jesus is speaking about them. They know what Jesus is talking about here. And ironically, it actually causes them to act like the tenants in this parable. Verse 12, look at what they do. They want, after hearing this from Jesus, they want to arrest him, but they are afraid because he's so popular amongst the people. Now, do you notice how this ties in exactly with what Jesus said of the tenants in verse 7? The tenants want to get rid of the son, but own the vineyard. It's the people of God. The religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus, but own the people. That's why they're afraid. They don't want to lose the respect of the people. They're so tied up with what these people think of them. And they want to be in control of them. But they still need to get rid of Jesus somehow. Because he's going to supplant their authority. Mark is showing us, Jesus is showing us, that such an act is symbolic of the judgment that will befall Israel's leaders. And the vineyard, he says in verse 9, will be given over to others. Who are these others? Well, they're undoubtedly in Mark's mind, the Gentiles. God's people will be given over to the Gentiles. The, The religious ruling body in Israel, what they had done is they had created this small, insular nation that they were so concerned about outward appearance that it had a kind of false piety, a false respect for God, and they alienated all the surrounding nations round about them. This is part of the judgment that Jesus brought on them in chapter 11, where he cleared out the temple and he said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The rival of God's king has meant the stomping out of such exclusive religiosity. The arrival of the king has meant that the kingdom will move from Israel to the entire world and judgment will fall on the distorted religious practices of these men. And although it's parables like these that spurred on the religious leaders to eventually kill Jesus, because no one likes it when their error is exposed so blatantly, Jesus also wants us to be very clear on something. His rejection was all part of God's plan of salvation. Verse 10. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's a quote there from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was a hugely important psalm, hugely important Old Testament verse for 
the early church and explaining why it was that Jesus was rejected by the Jews. It's often quoted in the New Testament. And the images of, of builders working on Solomon's temple. And they find a stone that they discard because it's the wrong shape. They wouldn't have had the appropriate tools back then for molding these stones into the kind of shapes that they wanted. So they find a stone in the quarry. It's the wrong shape. And so they just discard it and throw it away. However, in the end, it turns out actually this stone that they had thrown away has become an important stone, has become actually the cornerstone, the most important stone in a building. To remove it, the whole structure would fall apart. It's the stone that holds it all together, one that was originally rejected by the builders. It's an appropriate psalm to look at because Psalm 118 is about the temple. After Jesus' arrival, the temple moves from not becoming just this building, but it's the people of God. We are God's temple. So right at the heart of God's community, right at the heart of the vineyard of God, is Jesus Christ, the stone that was rejected. And even though he was crucified, even though he was killed, he has risen again. And the one who faced so much derision has become the foundation of God's kingdom. That's who is at the heart of this church. The, the rejected ruler, the suffering savior, the crucified Christ And it was his rejection that resulted in our salvation. It was at his crucifixion that all our sinful, rebellious acts, all that self-service and that ignorance of God and ignoring him, all those horrendous deeds were poured out on Jesus Christ. And he took the punishment of it so we wouldn't have to. He faced the ultimate rejection, being rejected by God his Father, so that we could be brought in and have the acceptance we need. The religious leaders may have planned this, but there is a first cause that was not them, and that was God himself. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, God did this. This is the Lord's doing, the rejection of Jesus Christ. And herein lies the great encouragement for Christians. For Christians when we see God's word rejected. For Christians when we ourselves may face ridicule or even rejection for seeking to adhere to the Bible, for seeking to adhere to the word of God. God is in control. Even the sinful, rebellious acts of human beings cannot thwart his ultimate end. In fact, what Jesus is doing in quoting this psalm is showing us that the rebellious acts of human beings will be used by God to achieve his glorious purposes. And as we gaze on the cross of Christ, we can see how God used such a wicked act of humanity to bring about such a glorious means of salvation. At the end of the day, we are, we are not better than these people who reject God's word. We who have been saved here, we have been saved by grace, not because we've worked it out, not because of some intellectual achievement. We have no reason at all for any form of superiority. But Jesus has rescued us despite our rebellion. His rejection became our reconciliation. 
And as Jesus Christ hangs on a piece of wood, beated and humiliated with the sins of humanity on his shoulders, we know that he hangs there for one reason, and that's because of us. The crescendo of God's love was rejected so that we could be accepted. The final revelation of God's voice was cast out so that we could be brought in. The King of Kings is stripped of all his righteousness so that we could be clothed in it. And we can look at that wretched cross, that horrible, the most brutal act that humanity has ever done in its history. We can look at that where the Son of God has been slain for us and say this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you um, that even though Jesus faced hostility and rejection, it was not out with your sovereign control. Thank you, Lord, that despite humanity's wickedness, you have found a way for us to be reconciled. You have found a way of dealing with our sinful rebellion and punishing it without punishing us. Thank you that Jesus, the great King above all kings and Lord of lords, took that punishment on himself so that we could be free. And Lord, even the the plans of the religious establishment at the time could not thwart your great plan of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that the vineyard went beyond the people of Israel and to the ends of the earth. Thank you that we are your people. And help us, Father, then to live as people of the King. Lord, we acknowledge that Jesus was rejected and we know that if we follow such a Savior as this, we too will face rejection and ridicule and even persecution. But help us, Father, to to endure and to hold on to the promises of God and to keep our eyes fixed on this great Savior. Thank you that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That this was your doing, O Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen.